Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. Cleaner than any baseball that was ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to all listening, and thanks, obviously, for making me part of your life for the last you know several years. And obviously, if you're just listening, a lot of stuff going on. Um, this is your place to go for the latest going on in Major League Baseball and uh, baseball historical standpoint. And, of course, check out JohnPielli.com, which has got everything summarized with all the interviews I've done with current and former Major League players, obviously all the shows and everything that I involve myself with with Bases Empty Blog. But, you know, going on in regards to baseball right now, Stephen Drew, shortstop, still out there. The New York Mets have a need for a shortstop. And regardless of what Sandy Alderson wants to tell you in regards to Ruben Tejada being the shortstop, to start of next season, I think ideally he would like to make an upgrade if he can. And I thought this past week I saw for the first time in my own mind the possibility that the New York Mets could go out there and sign Stephen Drew. Here's a guy that you know is obviously looking for a three-year deal. He's got Scott Boris as his agent. And I didn't even get too much into it with the fact that Scott Boris reached out to the Mets and tried to make a, a match between him and Steven Drew and him and Kendrys Morales. I, I didn't jump on with that. But when you started to see some of the dialogue going back and the fact that obviously Scott Boris wants to get Steven Drew three years, probably wants to get him about maybe $12 million a season, three years, $36 million for a guy who, let's be honest, is not really that old, probably is still within the prime of his career, and probably over the course of a three-year contract would give you sufficient production at the shortstop position, both offensively and defensively. But what interested me and what kind of got me thinking that the possibility still exists that the Mets could sign Steven Drew is the fact that they were talking years, and obviously Boris wants three years. Sandy Alderson was talking about one year. But now you're getting the sense that there may be a possibility that they could meet in the middle in regards to two years being enough to get this done. Now, how much is it going to be you know, per you know, year? I don't know. I don't think Sandy Alderson's going to go out there and give $12, 13000000 million to Stephen Drew for two years. But let's say it goes down to 10. Let's say... Maybe it's maybe it's something like seven or eight million the first year, and then ten or eleven million the second year with an option for a third year. I actually think there's common ground here. I think there's a possibility, and especially through the trade market, let's be honest, there's not enough in regards to other teams being willing to give up as far as good shortstops. Everybody keeps painting the you know great picture of Arizona, saying Didi Gregorius and Chris Go- Owings, one of those guys is going to come over and be traded to the Mets. Listen, the Diamondbacks probably want too much, and I don't think the Mets are willing to make a deal like that. You look at Juan Segura, who I've mentioned several times with the Milwaukee Brewers, I just don't see a match. I don't see the Mets being able to willing to give up a guy like a Noah Syndergaard or somebody that would take to be able to bring back a player like that. But let's be honest, Stephen Drew's a free agent. Stephen Drew doesn't have a ton of options right now. The market is crunching a little bit on this guy. And I think there is a little bit of a sense of urgency for Scott Boris to make sure this guy gets signed. I give Scott Boris all the credit in the world. I still think he by far is the best agent in professional sports. He does a great job. He usually gets his players the amount of money that they need and usually gets them a long-term deal. But sometimes he does take a step back and say, listen, this might not be the year for you. Maybe you hit the market next year and things are a little bit better and you could get yourself a deal that we've been looking to get you all along. Look at what happened with Edwin Jackson. He matched up him up with a deal with the Washington Nationals. He 
pitched pretty well that year, got a four-year deal with the Cubs afterwards. I would expect, as more time goes by, the possibility that they can make a deal like this in regards to Stephen Drew. And I'm not talking about a one-year deal. Maybe a two or two or three-year deal, maybe a two-year deal with a opt-out clause that Drew could opt out after the first season. Now the Mets, listen, they've been very uh, you know cautious in regards to giving long-term contracts. Uh, I'm sure this is something that could be worked out. You give a two-year deal, let's say it's about 19 million. Two years, 19 million for Stephen Drew. Eight million in 2014, 11 million in 2015. But you include an option for a third year, which will pay about 12 million, and that'll be a team option. But the option that Stephen Drew has is to opt out after year number one. If the market changes and all of a sudden there's a possibility that there could be a two, three year deal for Stephen Drew to get, then then I would probably expect him to take a, a deal like that and opt out of the contract. And let's be honest, that's what a guy like Sandy Alderson pretty much signed himself up for that opt out within a deal that's going to allow a player to end up leaving if it's if they see a more lucrative opportunity going on, because he doesn't want to commit the two or three years. And for a guy like Stephen Drew and Scott Boris to accept a two-year contract, there's going to have to be an opt-out clause that this guy can get after the first season. And I think Sandy Alderson will deal with that if it only costs him $8 million for the first year and $11 million for the second year. And let's be honest, Stephen Drew is an upgrade over Ruma Tejada. I don't even need to talk about how it is. But it's a situation where I think the Mets and Stephen Drew could possibly come to an agreement. The other thing that stands in the way is what other team would want to go out there and bring in Stephen Drew. You know, the New York Yankees, listen, Stephen Drew has never played a position other than a shortstop. So you sign Stephen Drew, it's obviously a threat to Derek Jeter. It's going to affect the things going on, the way they have things set up with their, their second base situation, their third base situation, and obviously it's shortstop. So I don't know if that's necessarily an option. Boston went out there and made the trade with the Colorado Rockies, sending Franklin Morales to the Rockies in exchange for infielder Jonathan Herrera. Jonathan Herrera is a cheaper version of Stephen Drew, is a guy that's going to play multiple positions and allows Andrew Bogarts and Will Middlebrooks to be everyday players at shortstop and third base, respectively. So I would consider the Red Sox maybe out of it, unless he drops his price and takes another one-year deal. But what other team would want to go out there and sign Stephen Drew at this point? The Los Angeles Dodgers are moving forward with Handley Ramirez as their shortstop. You know, you look at some other teams. What other option is there for Stephen Drew to go out there and sign a major league contract? I mean, you know, you know, Adani Hechevarria is over in Miami. He's going to be their shortstop. You know, what other team doesn't have a shortstop right now outside of the New York Mets? I mean, there's some of them that have more than one. D. Gordon's still out there in L.A., you know, about the two guys in Arizona. But what team needs a shortstop that bad that's going to go out there and give the three-year contract that Stephen Drew was looking for? So I think once it goes down to it, I think the Mets, you know, when you hear some stuff going out of the breast that they've actually talked about a two-year deal, I think it's something that ends up being possible as we move forward. And honestly, if Stephen Drew is added as the Mets shortstop, this makes this offseason look very good for what the Mets have done. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. And I made a little bit of a comparison while we're talking about the Mets. And we talked about the situation that went on, of course, with Jordani Valdespin. And Jordani Valdespin uh, was obviously non-tendered 
uh, even though he wasn't eligible for salary arbitration yet. And, you know, simply a, a, a chance for the Mets to cut bait with him, and they finally did it. Obviously, the 50-game suspension for his involvement with the biogenesis thing was probably the last straw. And he pretty much knew this guy probably wasn't going to play another game for the New York Mets. But to make a long story short, he's a free agent. He ends up signing a minor league deal with the Miami Marlins, which does not include a spring training invite. So he has to go prove himself again. And if he does, he'll be back in uh, Major League camp and probably start the season in the minors and have an opportunity to resurrect his career. But here's a guy that you know certainly caused a lot of buzz and a lot of buzz and a lot of different ways. We all know about the negative aspects, the stuff that he rubbed his teammates the wrong way. He rubbed manager Terry Collins the wrong way. He stormed out of the clubhouse and you know went on a fit when Terry Collins told him he was being sent down to the minor leagues. You know, you know about uh, him getting in, hit in the face with the pie with John Buck, who looked like he was trying to uppercut him, and the fact that the team totally resented him after he, he kind of strutted after hitting a home run in a game that was already decided against the Pittsburgh Pirates because the next day when he got hit, the Mets did nothing to defend him. So you knew his time with the Mets was probably done. But in my own mind, and remembering myself as a Met fan for as long as I've been, I remember when Greg Jeffries came up to the New York Mets, and that was in 1988. And if you look at the 1988 New York Mets, and I, I, I've talked about it before, I really do consider on paper, not necessarily on paper, but on field and the production they got from the players they had, this was the best team top to bottom that the New York Mets have ever had. They had a great offense. They had a great pitching staff. They had a great bullpen. They put it all together that season. And going into the playoffs against the Dodgers, you know they were heavily favored. They beat the Dodgers up a lot during the season. And obviously it was a little bit sad the way things turned out. And I remember as a as an eight-year-old kid crying after the Mets ended up losing in that seventh game against Oral Hirschheiser and the Dodgers. But obviously that doesn't mean anything. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is Greg Jeffries, a guy who came up at the end of August in 1988. And he, he produced right away. And Davey Johnson kind of fell in love with him, played him out there, and he played 29 of the final 32 games as the Mets starting third baseman in 1988 for the regular season. The postseason comes, and Davey Johnson says, listen, I, I want to go out there and get some more offense. I'm going to play Jeffries at third, and I'm going to play Howard Johnson at shortstop and sit Kevin Elster. And Jeffries ends up responding. He hit 333, was 9 for 27. Wow, uh, you know, doing a very good job batting second in the Mets lineup. And that led to the changes that the Mets made going into the 1989 season, making Howard Johnson more of an outfielder, shortstop, etc. And Jeffries had a pretty good year there. But what happened was there was the same type of divide within the Mets clubhouse. He didn't embrace his teammates well. The veteran players on the team didn't like him. It caused a little bit of a rift. But instead of getting rid of the bad apple, which in that case was Greg Jeffries, the Mets chose to build their team around him. Guys like Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez were getting towards the end anyway. You knew they were probably going to go, but then they make the trade with the Philadelphia Phillies, trading Roger McDowell, a guy who openly didn't get along with Jeffries, along with Lenny Dykstra, to get Juan Samuel. And that was the first sign that the Mets had decided to go with Jeffries as opposed to the rest of the team. And it broke the team up. And Lenny Dykstra said it years later that that, uh, that situation involving Greg Jeffries broke the team up and essentially led the Mets to not being as good as they were in 1988. So the question that I posed in my article, and of course, check it out, johnpielli.com, blog, mtrmedia.com, slash johnpielli, all those things. But... What if Jordani Valdespin had the talent of Greg Jeffries? And obviously, you can't compare the two players, 
Jeffries was extremely talented, had a very good major league career. Valdespin has not proven enough to make you think that he'll be an everyday major league player, but you saw some glimpses. You saw the three-run home run against Jonathan Papelbon. You saw the walk-off grand slam he hit last year. Uh, The guy obviously had a better 2012 than 2013, but always showed the promise to be that dominant of a player. And it's never come to fruition. But what if it did? What if he was Greg Jeffries of 1988? Would the Mets go forward and build a team around him with him being a staple in spite of everything that he caused as far as issues within the clubhouse? Let's say, you know, hypothetically, and and like I said, this is extremely hypothetically, but let's say that he had a, a, uh, let's say, a 1989 Greg Jeffries season. Let's say he got 400 at-bats last year and Jordani Valdespin hit 300 with a 325 on-base percentage, a 450 slugging percentage. Remember, Valdespin's not an on-base percentage guy. But let's assume he hit 30 doubles, 9 triples, 15 homers, drives in 60 runs, and scores 60 more. Then obviously, there's going to be a contingent of Met fans that are going to be like Jordani Valdespin. We like this guy. And maybe he becomes a starting second baseman or a starting center fielder. And you know going into the 2014 season that this is going to be a very good Major League Baseball player. Do you consider the stuff that has gone on in the clubhouse, the fact that his teammates don't like him, the fact that he doesn't get along with the manager, the fact that he is on a number of times an absolute jerk? How much do you consider that when you're looking to go forward with your team? Obviously, Valdesman's situation worked itself out. You didn't have to worry about it. But what if this was a guy coming off of that season that I told you? 300 average, drives in 60 runs, hits 15 home runs, 30 doubles, 9 triples. Obviously, you know, slugs about 450, which is something that's very respectable to see. But what if that was the case? Do you trade him? And maybe Sandy Alderson was, would be wise enough to move a guy like that knowing that his stock was high. And I, I think that's, a, that's an answer that I know I'll get from a lot of Mets fans that talk to me. But uh, you know, what happened? Would you make him the Greg Jeffries of your team and say, listen, we got David Wright. You know, we don't know what we're getting out of Ike Davis. We don't really have anything established here. Let's move forward with our best pieces. And what, what in that situation, their best piece would have been Jordani Valdez been coming off of a season like that. But I think it's very interesting because Greg Jeffries ruined the late 80s New York Mets. Similar to the way that Jordani Valdez been, if he was good, if he played at his best, would have ruined whatever momentum has been built up under the Sandy Alderson regime with the New York Mets right now. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to download the iPhone and Android apps if you are not listening, if you are listening on your computer. And if you, you, know, you are in any way, uh, obviously allows us to take us with you on the road, wherever you're at in your car, the whole thing. So uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Got a couple more interviews planned, a lot of stuff going on. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. And, of course, like my Facebook page, JohnPielli.com. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're, we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. 
Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. The next interview I'm going to segue into was a very interesting one. Because uh, getting a chance to notice, man, you realize how determined he is to uh, you know get himself known as far as his knowledge in regards to hitting a Major League Baseball. And that's Matt Noakes, who, of course, was a catcher with the Detroit Tigers in the mid to late 80s. Broke out in 1987 when he hit 30-plus home runs. Ended up playing a couple years with the New York Yankees. But you know, a guy who was probably a more hitter than a catcher. And, you know, you could see that in his voice and everything that I've had a chance to talk to him about. He's looking to expand his baseball clinic and talking about serious baseball players to kind of break down the swing and show them what they have to improve on to take their game to the next level. And, uh, you know, this was an interview that went a little differently than some of my others. And I'll be happy to know that I'm going to have Matt Noakes probably on the show again sometime soon where I could ask him more direct questions about his playing career and some of his experiences. But this was a, a situation where I asked one question and he really went into detail to break it down what he exactly he is doing and the swing and everything that's involved in it and you know it's interesting because you're going to do the same thing that I did where you know I'm, I'm thinking about asking the next question and I went from asking and thinking about asking the next question to just wanting to listen to his dissection and what he thought about and talked about in regards to the change of his swing so hopefully you guys enjoy this interview as much as I did as I get a chance to speak with former major league catcher Matt Noakes. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Matt Noakes. Matt, what's going on, man? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, I live in San Diego and born and raised here in the San Diego. And, and uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of blessed to live here. I mean, it was 72 and born in blue pretty much every day. And uh, it is a baseball, uh, baseball everything here. And, um, What's interesting is that when I, I get centered around the country originally, and in the colder, in the colder states, um, they're indoors. You know, they use a lot of um, uh, indoor facilities. Of course, you have to speak freedom outside. You can't go outside. And so uh, those type of businesses work well. So you see a lot of uh, ex-players or you know, entrepreneurs getting into the batting cage thing or maybe giving lessons or, you know, consulting in some way. I, I consult, I, I privately consult uh, players who are serious, guys who want to uh, ultimately really seriously have a chance to play in the major league. Um, and whether that ends up just being college education and then you know, maybe a little bit of pro ball or whatever it is, but it's like giving back. And, and so one of the things I'm doing now is, uh, is kind of what you're doing is I'm, is I'm, is I'm writing, blogging, and podcasting and, um, about the players I see. It's a positive spin. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to hurt someone's career. My, my, my goal is to 
is that, you know, one of my heroes was a good, it was a dear friend, was Ernie Harwell. And, you know, now called all the announcer for the, for the Detroit Tigers. Yeah, of course. And, and I never, we loved Ernie, everyone loved, loved Ernie. Well, players had to thing about, you know, whoever is doing the color, you know, they're using a retired baseball player on television, you know, whoever's doing the color on television. And, you know, and they're saying stuff, and it's easier to talk negative, you know. It's hard to find the positive in, 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 in whatever it is, and, uh, and I just, I really admire that. But that's, that's what I do. Um, players these days are, they are uh, giving um, uh, themselves over to a kind of ministry of going to showcases. You know, if you know, a player wants to, you know, get seen and go to college, whatever. And that, that way it makes it easier for the recruiters to come and see them. It's really been a transformation, you know, since our day, um, and, um, or since my day. Um, and uh, it's made it a lot easier on the recruiters, of course. But, um, and so, you know, it's, it's probably helps me as many regional players in the same, you know, playing the same place. You can see players from all over the country and in different parts of the country going to school now playing, playing ball, of course. Um, but what, I, what I'm doing, one of the things I'm doing is, is, is uh, um, working with the top players, guys who would potentially be, be drafted. I do the evaluations, and, 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 and I've been a, a top consultant in, in this field for a while now. Um, I've just done the research. I'm doing the seminars. I'm on the seminar circuit and, and speaking at conventions, the, the hitting conventions, and uh, I focus on hitting and catching as a catcher. Um, and, uh, you know, I take something, you know, that I know how to do, uh, and, you know, I got my doctorate in this, you know, kind of, and, um, and yet there are myths, there's truth and there are myths, and uh, these, these myths hold players back, and, 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 and as I look back in hindsight 2020, you know, there were myths that... I didn't pay any attention to, really, most of the time when I was just letting it happen. You know, players say, oh, I wasn't thinking, or, you know, I was just, well, oh, look like a beach ball. Well, what that is, is that for the moment, you, your feel is such that you're doing everything right. It's like taking a hammer and a nail. Well, you're not going to start twisting your wrist like it's a screwdriver. No, it's, you know what the hammer does. You know what the nail looks like, and it's, it's, you're driving the nail. If you bet the nail, would you ever think, okay, I think swing harder than than how this situation here. You know, of course not. It's not as you 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 it's about control, controlling, compressing that nail in the direction, you know, uh, getting getting the job done. Well, you're not thinking. There's a lot of you're aware of a lot. You have a heightened sense of awareness and you can carry on conversation because you know what your job is. And so it, it's a blessing to me to be able to, to give back. Now, just as a, as a little, little side note, when I was in the minor leagues, at 19 years old, I was lost, completely lost, struggling. I would have never made it. I would have been like everybody else who played, you know, six, seven years in minor leagues and retired. Frank Robinson, Hall of Famer, and Tom McCarthy, Coach Frank was the coach of the San Francisco Giants at the time, yeah. back in um, 81, 2, 3. And uh, so I was in the camp, I think it was 82, so it was 83 spring training. 
you know, where does he go with that is? And that's what I bring the message. I bring that now mechanically because that is a big part of it. But, but uh, how to get the mind and body together and to understand what you're doing so that your job becomes as simple as hammering a nail into some wood that you know what you're doing so that you don't have to think. It's like the mechanics, for example, are like learning a dance. And let's call the dance the tango. You can learn to stretch the tango. And how many, if, if, you know, in what world would you close your eyes and close your, close your ears and cover your mouth, or, or, or not cover your mouth, like the la 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 la, I don't want to, you know, don't tell me, because I don't want to think. What, in what other sport would you do that? And a lot of times when I'm consulting um, young players and uh, young professional players, all, all, all even when I'm consulting for the club, I'll, I'll watch the game, I'll have the club, I'll watch the game, the young coach says, okay, hey, what's going on? And then I give an airflow and ask the game, they have a meeting, and I say, you guys, if this was martial arts, well, first I ask, how many years have they been doing this? Of course, they probably say, it's years, you know, some guys have been born number one round pick, you know, and you're, you know, you're not, you know, they're not basically. And, and uh, um, I say, okay, if this was martial arts, you've been doing this for 18 years, what would be your belt right now? Honestly, what, what do you feel? Do you know what you're doing? Well, of course, the answer is no. I have no idea And And what happens is, is that there's, this game is such a beautifully, wonderfully confusing, mysterious, yet simple game. Because they've been saying, wait back, stay back for 50 years, right? If you don't stay back, you transfer your weight into the body. You have to transfer. In what sport do you not transfer? Here's a ball on the ground. Oh, you pick it up and pretend it's a rock. Take this rock, throw it in a park, and pretend there's a trash can 100 feet over there. Take this rock and throw it in that trash can. And you'll see kids so wound up tight. You'll take this, take this, throw it in a baseball, in a batting cage, you know, imagining what we're doing here on a park. So throws the ball, and this happens all the time. Throws the ball off of his back leg, never tries. His front foot is dangling, hanging in the air, you know. And he throws it, you know, literally off his back leg. He's like, put up, hey, he's transferred off. And I go, hey, what, what was that? And, and then, of course, they realize, oh, I don't know, that wasn't throwing. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't even know why I did that. Because they were trying to interject something of what you're trying to feel, these rules about hitting that were incorrectly interpreted. So I cut through all that kind of crap and bring the truth because there's a lot of, there's myths out there that are close to the truth. But if you can't decipher them and you don't understand them by feel, I mean, there's some things that you do that you have to feel something totally different to do the movement. Uh, that's fascinating. If you straighten out that butt leg, you can't actually transfer your energy. It's like a pole vault. You're running down that track and you, you put the pole in the, in the box and the pole touch the bend. And as it bends, it builds energy that, that it, but it wants to get straight. But it has to continue to build energy. Same with it. So when you take that, that, that back of cement, and transfer your weight into a core turn, you're basically using your core, holding it back close to your body and using 
control your body moving forward. So the answer is to not stay back. It's to learn how to control your body going forward. And so this is confusing. You got to yell at it to wait back, stay back. Oh, you know, they, what does that mean? Does it really mean I'm supposed to stay back? That's what you're telling me. So it, it's really hard on players. And so I'm able to get in there and dig in with both hands. And, and, and you know, I could say, you know, there was most of the myths I understood from this. Um, I, was, I was one of the natural ones that you could throw in the fire and I was able to cope with the pitchers with the delivery. I have this thing called right and stride. And it's about, it's about filtering the motion of, of the person delivering the ball to the pitcher, just like you, you do. I relate it to like play catch, or you've been filtering the motion of the guy playing catch your whole life, and you haven't thought about it yet. When you get the bat, you panic, and you strung out, and you get all jumpy. And you, so if you understand it, well, that's not anything. I want to learn how to Well, if this was um, karate, which you, you know, all you had to do is scratch and bite, and if you were left jab, you could say, no, 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 don't tell me anything to right now. At least scratch me in the eyes and bite them in the thumb or something more. So anyway, it's it's you you can you can formulate a plan in your spare time, in your training time, and then go into approach mode and, and convert it into into game mode, which is okay, now it's time to dance. And you know the moves, okay, you feel it, you learn the dance, you know the steps, you do the dance. Nah, but if you don't know what the dance is, then you're in trouble. Hey, you definitely are, man. Once you get John Pielli here for me, we catch our Matt and Oaks. Now, Matt, before I let you go, uh, you know, for people, let's say, in the San Diego area or even, like, within, the, you know, the parameters of, you know, California, out on the West Coast, how, how would somebody be able to get a hold of you? Let's say they are a serious baseball player within, you know, a, you know, a certain age group looking to kind of figure out the finer techniques. Well, one of the things that I do, well, easiest way is go to mattnokes.com, M-A-T-T-N-O-K-E-S dot com, and um, and the link on there, uh, and um, I do consulting, and and, and um, the coaches what what where they're at. I have a lab, and they come to the lab and they figure out, you know, we show them exactly what they're doing. And what movements in the dance that they don't do correctly, and then you know we go over the plan and and you know what you got to do, and, and, and you know it's a long session, it's a it's a it's a it's a real consultation, and you leave there absolutely understanding what you have to do. You don't necessarily know everything yet, but that's that's life. That just means that okay, I I know what I got to do now. There's these are the steps for tango. I got a, I have a little video of, of all the little stuff I got to learn. Okay, that's great. So I know what I got to do, and that's what I do. So I give them all the, you know, uh, video for every move, every step, and, and get the swing taken up, taken care of. And then, and then, of course, same with the plan after I teach them the way they need to hear. The first thing I got to do is I have to connect with the player. I have to meet them. I have to get to know how they learn. Because that's going to be the now that, that's awesome listen Matt I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes today and you know hopefully hopefully we can do it again sometime soon Thanks.
Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Matt Noakes. And we're going to do a segue right into my final interview I recorded this week with former Major League pitcher for the Texas Rangers, Wayne Rosenthal. And Wayne has been a minor league pitching coordinator for the Florida Marlins for a couple of years and, of course, is the current pitching coordinator for the Miami Marlins right now. And, you know, he lives out in Jupiter and does a very good job working with a lot of young pitchers. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with Wayne Rosenthal. But I do want to thank Wayne as well as Brian Sanchez and Matt Noakes for being part of this program. And you, of course, the listener, for giving me a couple minutes of your time. We'll be back with you next week. Good afternoon, it's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher and pitching coach Wayne Rosenthal. Wayne, what's going on, man? How are you? Okay. Yeah, everything's going good over here, man. Hey, um, you know, you obviously had a chance, you know, pitch a little bit in the major leagues, but you've also spent a lot of time over the last several years as a pitching coach. You know, tell us first about, you know, coming up, you know, your experience pitching, you know, professionally, and you know, your couple of years you got to pitch with the Rangers in '91 and '92. One thing that you know stands out is your quick transition into coaching. Was uh, was coaching something that you had thought about while you were still playing, or was that just a, a decision that you made after you felt like you were done? You know, I felt when I was a player, I did a couple of things. I, I used to go down to all the bullpens, whether well, I was throwing bullpens, and I'd always listen to my pitching coach and what he would tell everybody. And I found it interesting because I, I would learn from what he was telling other people. On the mound, I try to put it towards me. And I think I wasn't doing it to be a coach, but I think from that and listening and learning of how to coach, I've, I started teaching the young kids when I was in double A and triple A and helped out the young kids as best I can. And I think that was a, that was a transition. And once I retired, um, uh, I went to the ball for one year to play, and I couldn't do it. I had to bomb, couldn't hold up. And the manager there, being a pitching coach the following year, it, it was just so. Being in the right place at the right time to get a job right away in the tennis ball um, from retiring and going right into, into that level. No, I tell you, that's, it. that's interesting because, you know, a lot of times, you know, it takes like a little while to get yourself into, let's say, a, a team that's willing to hire you in that type of capacity. So, you know, in a way, you kind of lucked out. You kind of transitioned right from being a pitcher into a coach. Now, tell us a little bit about, you know, your first experience, you know, in, in independent ball. You went from pitching there to being a coach. What was the biggest transition that you had to make? Well, you know, when you're a player, the only person you think about is yourself. I mean, that's, that's what you're, I mean, it's, it's, I always call baseball individual team sport. Um, you're individual because you want to make it to the big leagues before the other right hand or the left hand. But you need your team to be able to, you know, fulfill that. Uh, you can't do it by yourself. But when I went to coaching, it wasn't just about me anymore. It was about the 12 pitchers that I had on my staff. And each and every one was, 
was just as important as the other one. And you're taking somebody else's career, not just your own, and trying to help them and mold them to continue playing, to get the best of their ability, to make it to the big league, whatever it was, to get to get their full potential out. And I thought, and I say this to this day, that that's more fulfilling than just doing it for yourself, watching that, that person, you know, generally into a pitcher and fulfill their dreams. Some get to the big league, some just going as far as they can go and just enjoying every second of it. You know, you end up, you know, through, uh, you know, through the independent ball, you end up getting a job with the, you know, the pitching coach in the Montreal Expos organization with the Cape Fear Crocs. You move yourself up forward, you end up becoming the pitching coordinator for the Expos in, in 2000. And, you know, tell us a little bit about that transition because, you know, you're watching a staff of 12 pitchers. And then, you know, being a pitching coordinator, you know, you, you end up essentially watching, what, you know, 50, 60, maybe even more pitchers. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure from that point that, you know, there was there was a lot involved in that, and I'm sure some things you had to change in your approach of some of the things you learned as a pitching coach, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I moved up to, you know, in playing, I moved up one level at a time and, and got to the big league as coaching. I went from low A to high A to double, and all of a sudden, it was in three years in the organization, I was a coordinator. Um, the transition was, was, was difficult because I felt like I had everybody underneath me, and I had to be on my game to make sure that everybody was working, doing what they need to do to get better from the bottom level all the way up. And I'm saying that first year, probably, I did not get much sleep. Um, I would say in spring training, I was there at 4.35 in the morning, and I was there till 7, 8 o'clock at night making sure organized, making sure I didn't forget a minute, making sure I didn't, I had everybody going where they're supposed to go. Um, it took me a whole year to get, I would say, totally comfortable with what I was doing. To be organized, not saying the work wasn't there, but just being organized. And um, once you get the, once you get that first one down, um, I think after that you're, you get into a, a good rhythm. Um, but yeah, it was a tough transition going from just working on 12 kids to having a whole organization and keeping track of pitch counts, innings, and pitching coaches, and all that. Uh, it's a lot more work, a lot more, a lot more telephone work, and a lot more traveling, which uh, took me a little time to get myself. Once again, John Pielli here, former Major League pitcher, pitching coach, pitching coordinator, Wayne Rosenthal. Now, you know, a lot of times when you become a pitching coordinator, you know, an organization goes to you and kind of looks to you as being a guy that's going to set the plan over what the pitchers within the organization are going to go through, what you expect from them and stuff like that. Um, you know, did, did you ever develop within yourself, either in Montreal or eventually later on with the Marlins, your own philosophy in regards to bringing up pitchers and expectations of what you would expect bringing pitchers from one level to the other? Well, you know, I had the opportunity when I first came off the Expos to have a pitching coordinator that was very organized. Um, his name was Jim Benedict. Um, and I learned a lot from him through what he did, the organization and everything, and his tools. Now, when I became a coordinator, I made things, you know, myself, my own. Uh, I believe baseball's baseball. I mean, there's certain things that I put in with the organization as far as, you know, levels of what they need to do as far as push to strikes, using fastballs, um, um, certain qualities and certain pitches, um, the mechanics part, the mental part, the philosophy is every pitch is different. And you can't have one philosophy to teach one pitcher or everybody. Every pitcher has their own flight. Now, it might be 10 of them that have the same philosophy, 
Um, but I believe that everybody has individual um, work, individual mechanics, individual thought process, and the way I have to get my point across to them. But the basics were um, just to level how to learn something new to get to move up, which is more used to the changeup, um, the breaking ball first, breaking balls into the last pitch. Um, but what I do now, which I've learned after a year or two, as a coordinator, is I use what the pitcher's strengths are. And I don't want to, when I guess you isolate the things you can't do, I want to I, I want to encourage the things you can do and make them better. Because that's why he got drafted, and I want to make sure those things stay, but try to improve the other stuff as he um, has to improve to make sure he pitches in the big league. No, absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, you end up, you know, with the Marlins, you end up going back on the field at the major league level. You know, I think, you know, I'm trying to figure out how you're thinking. You know, probably a, a good thing that you get, you know, the major league uniform back on, you get a chance to be a pitching coach, you know, under Jack McKean in 2003 and 2004. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, becoming going from a pitching coordinator to being a major league pitching coach. John Pielli here with Wayne Rosenthal. Now, you know, the 2003 season, you just touched on it. I mean, it couldn't have been a better time, you know, for you to get the opportunity to be on a major league coaching staff. Did you sense, you know, at any point during the season that the Marlins of that team were capable of doing what they ended up doing? You know, I, I, don't, I knew we had good chemistry, you know, and you, you could say, okay, we got chemistry, we got this, we got that, and, you know, we're going to do it. It's not about saying or do because you've seen a lot of times when teams have the best team on paper but don't perform on the field. So I would say that we had a good, solid team and we had all the components, but now we just need to put on the field. I think that the chemistry team, everybody working together and not try to do everything individual helped out a lot, and we just snuck up on everybody. And I think we went on a run. I believe there was a time where I thought that this was destiny because we, I think we went one and eight on a road trip and we lost a half the game. And I think that's, that's, there's a, there's a lot, some of the that day, it was in our cards for us to do it. 
Yeah, no question. I tell you, everything really came together at the right time there. You know, very good postseason. And you know, uh, what was what was what was it like in your in your opinion having a chance to work for Jack McKeon as a manager? aspects of your pitching coach and then, you know, veterans like, you know, like a McKean and like a Robinson, you know, it's it probably probably nice, you know, Pudge Rodriguez, you know, to have to have that mix of a team to have a chance to win a World Series together, that'd be special. Yes, you know, and you know, and look at my pitching staff, uh, uh, Mark Webner was a very big uh, influence with me, talking to me during the year, uh, helped me out a lot, trying to prepare the you know, once again another young Marlins pitching staff. Uh what what's your focus on getting them ready for this coming season? Rock over London, rock on Chicago, Wheaties, represent champions. 